0: all week long, candidly speaking, is doing a series called My Service Matters, where I will highlight veterans from all walks of life and allow them to discuss their contributions to society and their communities. My next guest is Alan Owens, my former supervisor, and is the only person I interviewed that I think spent time in both the Air Force and the Army. So what's going on out
1: there, Alan? Oh, man, you know, Luke, good to hear from you, man. You know, same old thing, different day.
0: Yeah, it's good to hear from you too. So now you out at uh are you at Fort Sam in San Antonio or are you? No, just... I'm actually
1: I'm actually at Randolph. Rand- Air Force oh, Base. Oh, yeah. right, right, right.
0: Okay. Wow. Yeah, I've seen a, yeah. I've seen a few announcements come out from uh from
1: Randolph. Hmm. I okay. used to be at Fort Sam, though that was my first duty station, man, when I joined the army about a oh, wow. hundred years ago. Yeah. <laughs> hundred years ago.
0: All right. So, look, let me let me introduce you to everybody. So uh, Alan Owens was uh, born and raised in Van Buren, Alma, Arkansas, joined the Air National Guard in Fort Smith, Arkansas from 1985 to 1992, went to Army basic training less than a week after Guard uh, drill, Uh, spent a total of 31 years in the military, seven years in the Air National Guard and 24 in the Army. While in the Army Air National Guard, Arkansas, he served as a security policeman. While in the army served as a soldier, drill sergeant, platoon sergeant, acting first sergeant, visual information manager. Duty assignments include Fort Sam, Armed Forces Network, uh, Korea. I don't know how to pronounce uh,
1: Silly in Hawaii. SILHI, yep. It's high in Hawaii. It's an al- yeah.
0: acronym. What's the acronym stand for?
1: Um Central remember? Identification. Yeah, Central Identification Laboratory. Um uh, they changed the name several times since then. This was back in the nineties when I was there. Okay. And I think it is now Department of Uh the acronym is DPAA, I think. Oh man, you've been keeping uh, up on it, huh? Yeah. You know, cause I still have friends that work there. Uh, you know, and it's, it's good to keep up with, for me, it's good to keep up with, um, you know, the work that they do over there, which I think right. is still important. So.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So you also spent time at uh, Fort Detrick where we first met. Uh, yes, go to a couple of stories about that. Uh, Fort Jackson, uh, the photography instructor at Fort Meade at Denfos, which is another place that I tried to get to and almost got there, but um the, the, the branch wouldn't release me to get that done. Um, you deployed to Iraq for a year, returned to 55th Signal Combat Camera, which we'll talk about as well. Uh, you spent some time at uh, Fort Irwin, California, on the Vulture team. Uh, I'll let you get into that. And then you finished your career at Carlisle Barracks in um, Pennsylvania. And that's interesting, yeah. too, because a few years ago, well, not few, a lot of years ago, my wife, uh, she, when she was still in the military, they did a, um, I guess they did a photo shoot for a poster down there. And she's in one of those posters down there. So that was pretty cool. I mean, you can't I can tell us her because I knew what her hairst- hairstyle was, but, mm-hmm. you know, just looking at it, you can't you can't really tell us. So before we get. Uh, dive into this to this interview. There's two stories I want to tell. I don't I don't know if you remember them. When I first arrived at Fort Detrick, my cousin Josh has another story, but I don't know if I want to go over that one. Um, <laughs> so when I first got to Fort Detrick, I remember I remember this day because I got into the pack office. You know, it was of course Marie and the whole crew in the in the pack office, and I get in there and you know I show up. It's like my first day for the assignment. And as soon as you saw me, you rolled your eyes and you were like, oh boy, here I go. I got to raise another kid again. And so, <laughs> oh, so in the back of my mind, I was like, no, this joker didn't just say that. I was like, I'm not a trouble, you know, I'm not a troublemaker. You know what I'm saying? I was like, where did you, you get that from? You know, so I thought that was pretty funny. And then the other story I want to tell was uh i can't i think i think i had just arrived as well i think this was not long after i arrived coming from uh second id you know so i'm thinking okay fort dietrich you know after i learned everything about the place it's gonna be a pretty chill relaxed assignment so yeah i overslept a little bit one morning but i didn't miss formation i got there right as the the horn was going off so after after formation i'm feeling pretty good about myself i'm like okay you know time change adjustment that was a little rough i made it the formation how after we break formation, you pull me to the side and you got me doing twenty five push ups, ten to twenty five pushups. one of those, and I'm like, wait a minute, what, can I can I get some sympathy for you know the time change, you know? And I just I was like, man, but you know what, it it was good, it was good because that I think that um that exemplified your leadership because you could, you know, you weren't like you didn't lay down the law, but you know, you said, Hey, look, you know, you need to put that in check and you made it, you made it clear that, you know, even though you're not in that infantry unit anymore, you're still here, you're still a soldier and you need to put that stuff in check. Do you remember either
1: one of those stories? Right. Man, I'm going to be honest with you. I really don't, man. Oh my because goodness. I would tell you why I would tell you why, because <laughs> a lot of times when stuff like that happens, you know, when it's over, for me, it's over.
2: Right. But okay. Yeah. So yeah.
1: just remember that stuff, man. I have <laughs> over the years I've had soldiers tell me stories and I'm looking at them like a deer in the headlights. Like <laughs> I probably did do that, but it's just that I don't remember because, you know, as far as the discipline part comes, when I do what I got to do or say what I got to say, I'm on to something else. And I, you know, I forgot about this. Hopefully you learned the lesson and then, you know, we'll go to the, to the next thing. But I don't I don't dwell on it, but I know soldiers, you know, yeah, <laughs> those are things that they will never, ever forget, man.
0: I will not forget that because I remember where my mindset was, but you're right. But that's also a good point because a good leader, um, a good leader can, can apply discipline and forget about it. Um, you know, when I put, when I, when I interviewed Lee uh, McMullen the other day, he talked about that a little bit. He said, you know, he had to sit down with a, with a soldier. And I think he said he had to issue an article 15, but he had, he told the soldier, he said, look, you know, I'm not going to look at you different, but I'm going to implement this, this discipline. And he also kind of talked about that, that, that thing where you can, you have that element where you can kind of let it go, you know? And, right, I, and yeah. I think, I think that's, I think that's really important. Um, when you, when you're in any kind of leadership role. So, um, I need to ask this question. How did you go from going into the air national guard to active duty in the army? Well, first of all, before we even get into that, didn't you play football like at Arkansas or something like that?
1: Well, after high school, I walked on, you know, uh, walked on the football team and made a football team and I played there for a year. Um, and then, you know, life took over and ended up getting married and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't, at the time I didn't have the the discipline to, to stick with it even though that had been you know one of my lifelong dreams was mm-hmm. to play football for the arkansas Razorbacks, and uh so when i made the team you know as a walk-on i was like man this is you know th- this is it right here yeah you know i never made it into a game i was always on the practice squad mm-hmm. and the JV squad and all that kind of stuff and this was during uh first part of the 80s okay you know gary anderson was the star running back who later went on to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Billy Ray Smith was a star on defense and he played for the uh, San Diego chargers. Um, we had Jesse Clark who at the time was on the JV team and he ended up playing with the uh, green Bay Packers. And it was, you know, a few other guys that went pro Lou Holtz was the coach at the time. Oh man. Lou Holtz. Yeah. He was, Ooh. he was the head coach. Yeah. And Ooh. a couple of years after that That's is when he got day, fired. Right yeah, yeah. 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 Cause it was, <laughs> Oh. I graduated high school in in 1980, so I walked on in the uh, summer of uh, 80, you know, and, and stayed there for for a year. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I
0: remember I don't I don't remember how we ended up having that discussion one time before, but, you know, sitting in our little yeah. office um, back at RID, back in there with those, those little tables, they had us sitting at whatever, whatever mm-hmm. they had, us, had us going on. I'm sure it just came up in the conversation, but I wanted yeah. to bring that out because I don't, I don't know how many people really know that about you or w- would know that about you, especially after spending as much time, you know, in the military, you know, that's kind of like one of those things that, you know, people wouldn't know, but I, I always think that's, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, they wouldn't know unless it came up in conversation or something, because I don't I don't really talk about it. People ask about it. I tell them. But, you know, it's not something that that I go around talking about or bragging about, you know.
0: Right. But Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's a big accomplishment, though, to, to be able to walk on. To a program, I mean, I don't know. They probably didn't have the money that they have today, giving out scholarships. But I'm sure they were doing a little something back then. And yeah, uh,
1: yeah, it, yeah. it was definitely that far ago.
0: I mean, in the 80s, that's not that long ago, really. Yeah. Um, yep. especially when you're talking about the rise of uh, college football and the National Football League. So, um, so now going back to the whole Army Air Force
1: <laughs> thing. So, how did you go from the
0: Air National Guard into okay, the so Army? Okay, so I'm going to get
1: into it real quick. So I, okay. I used to, I was playing, I played softball with my brother who was in the air national guard at the time. And, uh, I played probably played with the guard team for like maybe two years. And I played with different teams around the area, you know, pick up games and, but my main team was the air national guard team. Okay. <clears throat> so in 85, we had a, um, they were going to go to an air national guard softball tournament. And this is something the guard did every year. They play at a different place around the country. Well, this particular year, they were going to uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and they told me the only way I could go is if I joined the Guard. Wow! Now, at the time, I was strongly against joining the military. Um, straight out of high school, I had actually went and signed up for the Marines and passed the ASVAB and all that kind of stuff. And then when they told me, hey, you're going to be gone away from home for 13 weeks, I was like, oh, know, <laughs> I'll pass. You know, coming from a small town, man, yeah. less than 2,500 people. Never really been anywhere in my life. I was like, no, I'm not going, I'm not doing that. So fast forward to playing on the softball team. Um, in order for me to go to this tournament, I had to be in the guard. So, you know, my brother, he talked to the recruiter, the recruiter talked to my brother. I think they ran a game on me, <laughs> you know, cause um, he came to me one <clears throat> after uh, one weekend. He said, Hey, look, man, I got uh, security police. We can get you a security police with a $1,500 signing bonus. Mm. You know, I'm like, okay, no problem, bro. You know, that sounds like a good deal. Now me not really thinking and being naive of the military, I'm thinking, okay, I'll get that $1,500 as soon as I sign up. Mm. You know, that's a little money in the bank. And uh, they were like, no, once you sign up, you got to go through basic training. You got to go through (laughs) tech school and all this kind of stuff. And then that money's going to be spread out over a period of three years, Oh. right? So they got me. <laughs> they got you. You know, I, I can't say nothing else, man, except they got me, you know, on a $1,500 signing bonus. So fast paid forward- over three
0: years. Yeah, oh, man, <laughs> but, you know, paid over
1: three years, bro. So this is like every anniversary on the date that I joined is when I got a little, you know, a little bit third or whatever it was till it ended up $1,500 finally at the end of that three years. Oh, so, man. We went to, uh, you know, so the Gulf War kicks off, right? Yeah. 90, 91, whatever that was. Yep. And we ended up going to Simbach um, Air Base in Kaiserslautern, Germany, replacing some of the security policemen over there that had been pushed downrange to Kuwait. Mm. And so we were augmenting those guys while they were gone. And we probably spent 15 days there. And during that 15 days, man, I probably worked seven. Wow. At the most, you know, working nights, um, do, doing uh, flight line duty one night, maybe guarding bunkers of ammunition, driving around checking that out, another night, and we ended up me and a couple of buddies ended up spending a weekend in Paris, France. Mm. You know, and so I was like, man, this is this is pretty pretty dope, old country boy over here in Paris, France, right, chilling. You know, shoot, man, I thought I hit the big time. So we get back and I'm like, I like the idea of traveling, you know, around the world at that point, even though we had just went to, um, went to Germany, you know, we still did a lot of things over there in those Mm -hmm. 15 days. So I came back, went to an air force recruiter, um, told him what I did in the guard, wanted to try to transfer over to the regular air force and do the same thing. And they were like, um, no, sorry, um, but we're not taking prior service. Oh man. And I remember my exact words. So I told him, I said, so you'd rather take a chance on uh airmen washing out in basic training than putting somebody in that's already trained to do the job. He goes, Yeah, sorry, man, but that's just the way it is. So why is
0: the Air Force like that?
1: I'm not sure. I think they take prior service people now, you know. Um
0: because when I thought about transitioning over to the Air Force, actually, they were saying they weren't taking part service.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it now depends on what the what the job is that you want to do. OK. And how how the manning is for that particular AFSC, you know. Right. Um, so I just went next door to the Army, you know, and I thought, well, damn, my brother's in the Army. One of my younger brothers at that time, he'd been in like maybe three, four years. So I thought, man, it can't be that tough. <laughs> so I go in. This is like July time frame, July, August, probably June or July, really, of uh, 85. Okay. And I go into the, to the Army recruiter, and I felt like I was kind of getting screwed around because my recruiter at the time was 11 Bang Bang, mm. you know, infantry grunt dude, mm-hmm. and he was on his way out the door. So he pawned me off on somebody else, and I would go in like every week to check and see. They're like, hey, what kind of job are you trying to do, man? You know, and they're trying to give me their... The standard BS jobs that they give everybody. Right. You know, light wheel, mechanic, infantry, cook and so on and so forth. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with those jobs because people got to do them and they're very skilled jobs, you know, and offer good training. But I was like, look, man, I got a college degree, um, associate's degree at the time. And, you know, this is I mean, my degree is in radio and TV broadcast production. So can you find me something in that? So it took a couple of months, you know, and at the time when you wanted to find a job in the military, they were using uh, VHS tapes, right? That's how all the jobs okay. were, were yeah. done—videotape. You know, somebody put together a little tape like a commercial, and uh, it was on a VHS VHS tape. So they finally found something in public affairs, which is what I wanted to do, but I couldn't because I didn't have an audition tape. Mm. Now, okay. rewind a little bit. At the time, I was also working at ABC affiliate station, uh, channel 40 in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I remember you told me that. Yeah. 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 Doing master control and everything, but I couldn't get an audition tape. So I ended up, they showed me a tape with, um, video, you know, guys going out and videotaping, um, people doing training, uh, medical procedures, that type of thing. Mm. Um, so when that happened, you know, um, I was like, yeah, that's it right there. That's what I want to do. Because when I was working at Channel 40, we actually went out to uh, Fort Chaffee, which was at the time JRTC, which eventually moved down to uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. Okay. But what they would do is hire you know, local uh, TV people, local TV people to go out and document the training and then come back and run the VHS tapes so they could do their AARs and everything. So I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, that's what I did a little bit over here as a civilian. So yeah, let me, you know, I'll join the army and do that. And eventually by September of that year, that's, you know, I got locked into the job and went off the basic training man for the army and the rest is history.
0: Wow. Wow. So during your time when you were working at ABC, um, You know, I was I just this year, you know, since the pandemic, I've been trying to read a lot more. And I read about that guy, uh, Robert Iger, who was the CEO of uh, Disney for a while. He's now like the chairman of the board or something like that. Did you ever uh, was he? Do you know if he was there while you were there? Because I know he got his start at ABC. I just don't know what affiliate affiliate that he that he got. But I know he rose through the ranks pretty quickly. Did you ever hear his name or remember his name at all?
1: No, I can't say that I did, man. And really the TV station I worked at was like small hometown station. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah. It was, it wasn't a big, like a big network like being in Dallas or Mm. LA or anything like that, man. It was like homegrown. Yeah. Yep. Okay.
0: So uh, my last question regarding that though, is I know you didn't really get a lot of any time in active air national, you know, in the, in the air force. Right. But as far as a, 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 Uh, from a military standpoint, which, which service did you appreciate more? Only, only, only the things that you can compare, like, you know, people you were around and, you know, how they treated each other between Air National Guard and the army, which, which one would you say was, uh, if you could have, if you could have continued in the Air National Guard or the Air Force, knowing what you know about the army, would you have, would you have stayed in the Air Force?
1: That's a good question. I would tell you as, when I was in the guard for those seven years, which by the way, only added up to three months active duty. If you can believe that. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. So while all the time I was in the guard, I tried to, um, you know, they would post jobs to go AGR active guard and reserve. So that would, you know, that would be a full-time job. Right. And I applied a few times over the years, but never got hired. Um, and I thought it was always some type of racial thing to it because I would see guys that worked out there as firemen on the weekends that got hired onto the security police side, Mm. you know, in the AGR. So I always thought that was kind of suspicious. And then I applied for um, a couple of openings they had in the uh, public affairs video department and got turned down for that because they ended up hiring, you know, and the guard is guard like the reserve kind of is like the good old boy system, man. It's who you know yeah, and how they can, you know, get you in whatever, you know, depending on what type of job okay. you have. But compared to the two, <clears throat> you know, people always think the air force is better active duty and everything because they don't have all the discipline and they don't do all the hardships and everything. But for me, being in the army was probably the best thing. Okay, If I'd been in the air force, I don't think I would have, been able to stay in as much as I did because, you know, um, Air Force, man, you can get kicked out for looking at somebody wrong, you know, and that's, <laughs> a, that's sort of an exaggeration, but right. you know, an army, you do that, you get, you know, do some pushups, get up and move on. Right. But the Air Force had a tendency to apply discipline, I think a little bit harsher, more harsher than the, than the army did depending on, um, what it was that you did. And looking back over the years, you know, people think, <clears throat> the services always competing with each other and who's the better service and this, that, and the other. And it would that people would say the Air Force is better, followed by the Army, followed by the Navy and Marines, or vice versa, on that bottom four. Right. Three or four, depending on where you live. And and a lot of that had to do with quality of life, um, housing, the base facilities and just the overall look of the uh, of the bases and everything. But yeah, definitely for me, the the army Man worked out to be the the best thing that I could have done, and I, my only regret regret is that I wish I had done it sooner. Mm, you know, okay. instead of I don't want to say wasting, but yeah, kind of <laughs> wasting all those years in the guard for it to only equal three months. Right. You know, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But no, it did. Oh, it, the only the only good thing that came out of that was those seven years counted for pay. So. Right. You know, knock on wood for that.
0: Yeah. No. That's that's that. You know, you definitely got to. Got to take that p- uh pay. So I want to transition a little bit because you have a, a ve- another very interesting part of your career that uh, a lot of people wouldn't know about is um you actually spent some time in North Korea, like not yes, sir. not just, you know, <laughs> going to the border. You were in North Korea and I think, I can't remember how long you said you stayed. Was it like a week or something you guys stayed or how long did you guys actually stay in North Korea? Oh
1: no, my man. We were over there for about 30 days. Oh wow. Okay. So yeah. So this is when I was stationed at Seal High in Hawaii, um, (laughs) which is now called Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. Uh, Same job. What we did was our mission was to go out uh, based off of evidence and based off of, you know, firsthand knowledge of burial sites and crash sites from uh, men and women in the armed forces, United States armed forces that were killed in the Vietnam War, Korean War, just base World War II, right. even. Um, and we would go out and try to find their remains and then bring them back to Hawaii for identification and eventually um, ship their remains, you know, back to their loved ones, wherever they mm-hmm. live across the country. Um Yeah. So that was probably one of the best jobs that I, I'd say that was the best job I had in the army, but we ended up in North Korea because we had a mission there. And so Clinton, I think was the president at the time. And this was Mm. just after his impeachment thing. In fact, I think this was in February of 99 that we went there and we went through China first, you know, which was cool because we got to go to the, um, the great wall, Mm. you know, spent a few hours there looking around and we ended up staying in Beijing for like three days before we eventually got to North Korea. So when we got to North Korea, um, we're out at our base camp, which is like kind of out in the country, you know, and we, we actually sat there after we got our base camp set up, established communications with the embassy and all this kind of stuff. We ended up staying there in the base camp for about a week because the North Koreans at the time were waiting on new vehicles from the United States mm. uh, and along with fuel to go in those, um, cars. And these were, you know, land cruisers that we were riding around in. So when they finally came in and they got permission, you know, for us to go out, um, and do some digging, you know, we ended up, bringing back seven sets of remains, but you could tell it was all political, man, because they would not take us out to any burial sites until um, a contingency from the League of Families came over and, you know, observed what we were doing. They watched the interaction between the North Koreans and our our team from Hawaii, um, which were all, at the time, were all, Army personnel made up of myself as a photographer. And mm-hmm. then we had a an EOD guy who, you know, swept the area for mines before we started digging. Right. Uh, we had a, a special forces medic. Each team had a special forces, forces medic on it. And then everybody else were 92 Mike's military affairs personnel. Mm. So they were the ones that were actually trained in doing that type of work. And everybody else just got hands on as, as you arrived at the unit. You know, but anyway, when in North Korea, you know, it's like we get there and I don't I don't think people can actually grasp how bleak and bad the situation is even today. And this was back in in ninety nine when I was there, you know, you had it, how, how old is your daughter again?
0: Um, uh, My daughter or my son, your daughter, she's only uh six months.
1: So six months old. If she could walk up to a year, whenever they start walking, would be out in a field. We would see kids that age, man, one, two, three years old, wow. out in the fields picking up rocks, you know, moving them, uh, clear the fields for plowing or whatever. And everything just basically looked kind of desolate. You haven't been in Korea. I don't know if you ever went up to the DMZ. Where you could look Where you could look across there. And you, you see on the north side, everything is... I mean, on the South side, South Korea, everything is robust, greenery, excuse me, et cetera. But you go to the North and, you know, some places just look entirely desolate, but there are some nice places over there, nice tourist attractions and everything. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So in, you know, this was like February, March timeframe. So it was really cold. And I think one of the places that we went to uh, search for some remains was probably about 30 clicks from the Chinese border, mm. right? Um, and we always had guards with us who were supposed to be, I guess, pre- keeping us from interacting with any of the local people that might happen to be around, right? And I remember on a weekend, um, they would bring us in to this hotel that it reminded me of, um, we called it a Castle Grayskull, because of the way it looked, you know. Right. When we finish, I'll, I'll shoot you a picture of what it looked like, okay. and and you you understand why mm. why they call it that. But this is a hotel with over a hundred rooms. Where the, when we would come in, we would be the only ones in that hotel, along with our uh, Korean counterparts, North Korean counterparts, because they would, they didn't want anybody else to see the Americans. Mm. So one particular weekend, we're hanging out. And we couldn't go anywhere outside of the hotel and outside the grounds of the hotel. So they had a basketball court and we played basketball. Um, They took us to this uh, historic park there. And we hiked up the park, you know I mean? Hiked up the trail about a mile up to this waterfall. But we always had a contingency of North Koreans with us, you know, supposedly for our protection, Etc. cetera. And I remember we went to this play one time, which turned out to be just a propaganda uh, gathering for the North Korean people, you know, cause they're still under a dictatorship. Right. Right. And so looking back at it now, I, I liken that to a Trump rally, man, where you just got somebody on stage talking and these different acts and performers come up to get everybody riled up. Hmm. And with the North Koreans, we were, you know, the propaganda part was saying that South Korea were puppets of the North Koreans. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And they did whatever. Whatever we told them to do and that North Korea actually won the uh, North, you know, the Korean conflict in the 50s. Right. And, uh, you know, they killed over a million American soldiers and all this other kind of stuff, which wasn't true. But when there was a tour we went on, in addition, after that little uh, play circus-like thing. And so you go to these displays and it tells the story of how um, Kim Jong Il or on whichever one it was, the older father, how he came into to China and or North Korea and took over and he became the sovereign leader of them. And that's, you know, that's, they still view him that way. Right. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. more so than his son. Yeah, because <clears throat> his son, if he don't like you, you know, find out somebody said something against him, he'll just kill you, Yeah, <laughs> you know, Yeah, <laughs> and that's the way it is. But it was everything about that place is driven by propaganda, uh, false accusations and just flat out lies, man. And, you know, people were living in fear. And so I remember as we were driving around to, to go to this event, and they drove us by a basketball court this like a olympic village or something where they had their athletes out there training mm. and once they discovered that americans were on the bus they just stopped started yelling go to hell americans go to hell and flipping us off and all this kind of stuff man yeah. it was like wow really all the way in in north korea and and we're getting this right yeah so Fast forward, we do our mission, we end up bringing back <clears throat> um, seven sets of remains <clears throat> um, at, as we did a repay ceremony at the DMZ. Mm-hmm. And I have to backtrack a little bit. Uh, well, we, the couple of nights that we were in China before going to North Korea, one of the guys with us was our, had been there before, so he knew where to go to hang out. So late at night, we're all you know, trying to go out to a club, relax, have a good time. We start walking toward his club, try to get in. So it's our team, which is like maybe five black guys. We got a white guy with us. We got a female Chinese interpreter, right? Mm, okay. We get to the door. First, the white guy and the Chinese girl walk up. The white guy's asking him, the guy at the door, how much to get in. He's telling him in English, you know, how much the fee is to get in. No problem. It's a nice club, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time we catch up to him, the guy at the door realizes that we're all together. So then he starts speaking Chinese. And we're asking the girl, what is he saying? What, you know, what is he telling you? And basically he was telling her that there was no more room in the club. We couldn't get in and we'd have to leave. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're hanging at, at the door for like maybe 15 minutes. And we see people still coming in, going out, coming in, going out. And we're asking, Hey, what's up? You know, these people, you know, you said there was no room, but people keep coming out. Right. And we're waiting to go in, but you won't let us in, but you let everybody else go in. So we eventually leave and go to this African club somewhere, somewhere else in the city. Next morning, we're at breakfast talking about what happened the night before and find out that at that club, some Africans had got into a fight there and got kicked out. Oh, wow. Cause the white girl and the, I mean, the Chinese girl and the white dude, they went back later on. They got in the club with no problem. Mm. And that's what the, that's what the guy told them. So even though they knew we were Americans because we were black, they wouldn't let us in the club. Wow. Because of the incident with the Africans. Now, keep in mind, this is 99. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking, dang, man, this kind of stuff happens all the way over here in China. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. it, that's just, crazy. it was, it was eye Yeah. you know, and so we did our little little Chinese mission uh, there and got our supplies and everything, passports. Went on to North Korea and, like I said, spent thirty about thirty days there, and uh, did our mission. Interacted with some of the Koreans. I even, you know, we because every mission that we would go on to different places, you know, we give try to give little gifts to the locals that helped us out working. Right. You know, it might be a watch or maybe it's some clothes that we mm. picked up. At a thrift store before we went over there, <clears throat> and so each of us had watches that we were trying to give these guys, and they would not take them. And through our interpreter, they were like, "No, we cannot accept the gift from you Um, because if we do, we will get killed." Mm. And you know, I thought that was like crazy, man. Just and this was in China then, or North Korea. This was in North Korea. Okay, you know? yeah. This wow. was in North Korea, and I thought it was just so so strange, you know. And these guys that were the soldiers were. Uh, they were probably nineteen, mm. twenty no older than twenty-five. You know, just to live like that, man, was was crazy because I'm thinking they're, you know, and it's mandatory for them to be in the military. Right. Right. No questions asked. And you definitely definitely couldn't do that here. So when I hear people talk about um <clears throat> you know Trump being tough on China and North Korea and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, man, y'all, y'all really have no idea about how the, the United States government interacts with these people, you know, not on a daily basis. What you see on the news, a lot of times is not half of what's happening behind the scenes that, that nobody, nobody outside of military or a certain security clearance would even know. Yeah. So, but yeah, that, that North Korean experience was, was, uh, was definitely an eye opener, man.
0: Wow. That reminded me, did you, did you watch the Spike Lee movie on Netflix? Uh, the five bloods. Did you yeah, watch that? I did, yeah. Oh yeah. And listening to your story yeah. kind of reminded me a little bit of the movie. I mean, not exactly, but you know, you had the guys going back in Vietnam, kind of reliving, you know, their right, time right. over there, you know, it, it just kind of sounds like that. But if you go on, I think it's Netflix or something like one of those, one of those platforms they have a few documentaries about that propaganda stuff you were talking about that happens over in North Korea um that I've seen a few documentaries on that and it is and it is real they the people they basically have to pledge their loyalty um and uh you know i won't I won't go into more <laughs> more than that with our current climate but um you know uh it it yeah. is it is pretty bad and even if you go a lot of people think South Korea is Completely, you know, it's just, I mean, they are a lot more free, but you get into some little parts down in South Korea, you know, some of those, you know, still looking real thorough world, third world, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And, and you're right, you know, the racism is actually over there and it's, the racism is thick um, because South Korea also has a large population of Africans and, you know, it seems like they, they got a lot of money, you know, it seems like they over there running some things too. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so they have a, they have a heavy population. But, you know, like you said, they see you, you know, they see the color of your skin and it's like and they have so many stereotypes. That's why I, one of me and my wife's favorite movie is Rush Hour. And uh, Rush Hour, too, has so many, you know, Chinese black man stereotypes. But when you're in like uh, when you go to somewhere like South Korea, they they have a lot of stereotypes on us based on movies that they have seen. And they think, you know, they'll say something and they think it's okay and it's funny and it's cool. And it's like, no, man, that's that's not really how it goes down. You know? Exactly, man. So exactly. and, and this and so and and that really inspired me. And that's why whenever it comes time for me to start doing movies, I want to really avoid too many stereotypes. I mean, some stereotypes. There's a lot of truth to a lot of stereotypes, but not really. Right. Not in the way that you know people you know over overemphasize some of these stereotypes, and so
1: right, not in the derogatory
0: sense, as de- if that, right, exactly,
1: yeah, as if that is the norm, right. and not the exception to to everybody, you know,
0: right, exactly. So when I I that is one thing that I want to be conscious of whenever I start really putting films out there because. You go somewhere overseas. That's what they're basing their interpretation of what a black man is when you go over there. Is the movies that they've seen, you yep, know? Sure is. Um, but you know, a lot of them are conditioned now because you know we've been over there for so long. But you know, last thing I'll say about that Korean thing is, you know, my experience over there. I've been over there twice, and it seemed like the older generation had more of an appreciation for, for us being there, but some of the younger guys, man, they're like, you know, they weren't like the North Korean guys you were talking about, but some of the younger guys are like, man, we don't, we don't need you here. We can do our own thing, you know? Um, so, uh, but anyway, I thought that was interesting that you went inside North Korea and I, I don't know anybody yeah. else that can, that can actually, um, say that. So during your time, you became a drill sergeant. I remember mm-hmm. when you went to drill sergeant school. Um, yep. I think uh, do you
1: remember what year that was when you went to drill sergeant school? Two thousand three, man, summer two thousand and three yep. okay,
0: perfect because that's what I have here. Um, it was around that time. So you were basically on the trail to train soldiers who were getting deployed to Iraq, and we were just starting to invade Iraq, I think, in two thousand and three. So what was that like? I mean, because I know the army was still kind of doing the the Vietnam style training. so what was that what was that what was that like to start to train soldiers as they were getting ready to? To go down yeah, range. that's
1: that's a good question, man. Because I when I started September two thousand three, you know, we were just uh, like you said, we were just getting into going into Afghanistan, Iraq, and uh, so being on the trail was was interesting because mm. at the time <clears throat> we had a few soldiers that came through, and some of them were um, had been in juvie. And it was, you know, somehow they ended up it was either, okay, when you come out of juvie, you go to the army or you go to go to jail. We had a couple of them like that. Mm. Fast forward to 2004, when the surge picked up is when we really started getting soldiers through. Now, on average, if you're on a trail for basic training, you might do. Let's say nine weeks, every nine weeks, you're, you're training a cycle with maybe a one and a half week break in between each cycle to get ready for the next one. And so that summer of 2004, man, was rough because we were going back to back cycles with maybe instead of a week in between, we might have four or five days tops before we pick up the next group of soldiers to train. And then at this time we were also, we also had, um, Reserve drill sergeants in with us, you know, and sometimes that worked out good, sometimes not so good, because a lot of those guys were just coming in for that two weeks Mm. of, you know, doing their two week uh, drill or whatever, and then they would leave. So while they were there, some of them would be over the top, some of them would just, you know, be laid back and try to blend in with the active regular drills that were there or they'd get taken advantage of by the soldiers, you know, because <laughs> they figured they, they didn't really know what to do and and they'd be able to take, you know, take over. <clears throat> but during that surge, we had people, I guess maybe it was around that time that the army raised up their uh, age limit to come in. Right. So, so I had people, <clears throat> male and female come in that were 35 up to 39 and, you know, One guy said him and his brother, I think he was like 38 or something. Him and his brother had a, they were attorneys in whatever small town he came from. Um, And I guess when the economy crashed, you know, they lost their business and they figured this was the only way that they could kind of get back on top and start over again was if they, if they joined the military. Wow. And that's what they did. But with the training, you know, initially it was just regular, basic training. You're doing, uh, Drilling ceremony, learning how to march, learning how to call cadence and, you know, basic basic riflemanship, going to the range, qualifying and all that kind of stuff. And that was pretty much it. But then when, there was, when the surge kicked off, then we started going to different training where we're riding in vehicles, um, teaching soldiers how to shoot from those vehicles, whether they're in the front or in the back, you know, a deuce and a quarter um deuce and a half and so the training i guess is what really what really changed the most to try to reflect what was actually happening down range yeah and, that was tough yeah you know and sometimes you get soldier ask hey you know um have you been deployed and they didn't know at the time that if you deployed you know you had a deployment patch what on your right, right shoulder? side yep your right shoulder yeah so they didn't really know that and so we had a couple of uh eleven Bravo drills in each platoon and they had the you know the baby blue discs right um on their campaign hat. And so some of the soldiers, you know, we were sitting around one cycle, you know, toward graduation and somebody asked, Well, Drill Jones, so how come you don't have a blue disc? And one of my battle buddies said, because that means he killed somebody. <laughs> come on. You know, so Wow. Yeah. I mean, he said it as a joke, but (laughs) it was really to throw soldiers off to stop. So they wouldn't be asking questions like that. Right. And, and, uh, you know, and some of them made it through basic training. And also at this time, there was also a, um, attrition was part of the, the problem that we, we couldn't really kick soldiers out, man, unless they did something so terrible that we had no choice to kick them out. Um, and I'll give you a, An example of that here in a minute, and but it was like you have a soldier come through, and you know this soldier is terrible. Can't pass the PT test. Can't you know qualify on the range. But because of the need to have bodies fill these slots overseas, okay, we'll push them through to AIT, and they can get the training once they get the AIT, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And so a couple of things that that would get soldiers kicked out at that time was if they, uh, try to commit suicide, which, you know, some of them did, uh, unfortunately, and yeah. I don't want to make light of that. Cause some people really did have problems and then other people, you know, we felt like they were doing it to get out because they realized that basic training <clears throat> was not going to be like going camping. Like yeah. they thought it was, right. Yep. You know, and then you would find the real, discipline cases of soldiers fighting actually going into physical blows with each other and depending on if they told on each other that would determine as whether or not they would actually get kicked out or if they just get an article 15 and keep driving with the training. and Mm. so yeah so at the time you know uh i remember we had a, a male soldier that was in the platoon and he had actually gotten transferred from another battalion because of a discipline problem. Mm-hmm. And so anybody that had a discipline problem within our battalion or battalion across the street, they would normally send them to our platoon um, because of the reputation of my battle buddies and myself. Okay. You know? um, and... You know, I ain't going to say that, you know, we laid hands on anybody, (laughs) but I think they understood the purpose of us being there and why they were there and who was in charge. Right. So this particular guy, man, had a had a habit of. Really, um, for lack of a better term. Sexually assaulting females, Mm. but nobody was saying this went on for a couple of weeks and nobody was saying anything right. Like actively doing it while he was in training like actively doing it while he was in training. And so one of the things when we found out about it, we were like, okay, so what, what is he doing? And they're like, well, he would be erect and during mail call, he would walk up behind one of the females and, you know, rub up on their shoulder or something like that. Mm. And so we happened to catch him during mail call one day and it took us all of 48 hours to get that guy kicked out. Sent home, bad conduct discharge, shipped out, and everything. Wow! Um, and that was one of the rare occasions that I could think of where somebody got booted out real quick. But other than something like that, yeah, it was lottie dottie. Everybody get them trained, get them through, and get them down range as quickly as we can. You know, <clears throat> the good thing about that, some of them, I had a couple of soldiers that um, that I st- you know that I still stay in touch with. I say a couple, but it's, it's a handful right. that I still stay in touch with. Um, a couple of them uh, ended up becoming sergeant majors mm. that went through in the summer, that summer of 2004. And a lot of that was because of them, uh, because of their MOS, you know, fast tracking yeah. through the ranks and everything. I had a couple of soldiers came through that uh, went to West Point uh, VMI. The Citadel, you know, they had the option, I guess, of doing, um, doing a summer, uh, basic training there. Mm. And so when they became first lieutenants and captains, you know, they would reach out for advice and, you know, right. uh, you know, on how to handle certain situations and everything. And I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I guess that was one of the unexpected uh, bonuses of, of being a drill sergeant, because as you said in the beginning that, you know, telling the stories about, um, my, my first interactions with you <laughs> yeah. soldiers are the same way, man, especially in basic training, you know, things happen, things are said and maybe we don't remember them, you know, as drill sergeants, maybe we don't remember them as well as they do, but those are things that they'll remember, you know, for the rest of their lives. Hmm. Um, it doesn't matter if you, if you were, a candy drill, which is somebody was soft or that got, you know, soldiers got over all the time, or if you are hard ass, you know, and some of them, some of them understood why you had to be that way. Yeah. Particularly, um, going through the surge and everything and how serious the training was. And then others took it as, you know, part of, uh, part of the growing and training process. Right. So they, they were able to accept it and able to deal with it better. And I think, from that aspect, they came out as, as, um, as better soldiers and eventually better leaders, you know?
0: Yeah. I went, when there was a guy, what helped me through basic training, it wasn't, it wasn't horrible. It wasn't completely horrible. Um, but what helped me through basic training. So I was at Fort Sill and when I got to Fort Sill, we weren't, um, we were the first cycle that allowed females. Um, because up until that point, they didn't, or at least that's what they, we were told. We were the first cycle to allow, um, you know, to allow females, but I had a guy that was in my, uh, basic training. He was an older guy. Um, you know, I went through, I think 2000 or 2001, one of those. And, um, he came in and we were going through all the basic training stuff and he was just there, but he had been prior service, but he had been out three years. So he had been through basic training before. (laughs) So he had to Mm -hmm. go through basic training again. So through each phase, he's just constantly telling us, look, you know, he was telling us kind of what to expect. He's like, listen, guys, you know, they're just doing this. They're just doing that. You know, don't, don't even pay no mind to it. Just do what they tell you to do and you'll be okay. So I always thought that was pretty cool to have somebody that kind of, I guess he was kind of like our coach, (laughs) uh, you know, in the middle of all that, because if you're not, if you're not, so to me, basic training can do a lot of stuff to you. It can either really help you or can really mess you up. Um, And if it depends on your reason for being there, (laughs) you know, my reason I, you know, I had to, I had to get away from where I was from. So there was no going back to that, you know? Yeah. Um, Right. but for some guys, you know, we had one guy in our basic training, I ain't going to say his name, but he couldn't, he couldn't march. He couldn't do, he couldn't do anything. He still graduated. And even after graduation, he could not march. He could not get the concept of left foot forward, right hand forward. Like he could not get that concept for some reason. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but he was, he was, um, he was super, super smart he could remember just about anything you tell him and i never knew what ended up happening to that guy but um so you know it could you know basic training could really uh, mess you up and uh or it could or it could really help you actually that same guy when we went to the gas chamber he was in front of me he took his mask off and he fell out fell right on me that kind of scared <laughs> me a little bit because i thought i was going <laughs> to i thought i was going to fall out too but i didn't but when as soon yeah. as he took his mask off i mean he was already scared he was already nervous he took his mask off he fell straight out fell right on my leg i was like oh man So, you know, but, you know, they, they drug, (laughs) they drug them out of there. So basic training was one of those um, good times for me. So you, so in addition to training soldiers to get prepared to go to Iraq, um, I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but you ended up spending some, or or maybe around the right time. Uh, So at that point, after that, you ended up spending some time in Iraq as well. So uh, tell us about your experience in Iraq, because at this time you're still, you were still, I guess you would have been a 25 Zulu at that time, I guess. Yeah, um, you're correct. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So what what was that, what was that like? What kind of, what kind of things did you end up having to do over there?
1: So I was, as you say, at a 25 Zulu and basic uh, BSP, basic steel photography instructor at Denfos from 05 to 08. So in 08, I volunteered to um, deploy you know, mm. on a mid team, because I knew there, I wasn't ever going to go to a unit that right. at the time I was thinking I'm never going to go to a unit that, um, that I'm going to deploy with as a combat camera dude. Uh, and at the time there was no chance that I thought that I would end up going to 55th, but mm. <clears throat> we'll get to that in a minute. So while yep. I was at Denfold, I volunteered for a mid team, uh, military, um, you know, training team. Right. And I ended up going what they were doing was if you were part of the signal Corps as a senior n c o they made you uh commo chief
2: mm, okay now they
1: already they already had como chiefs in you know for that m o s but they were short of people going down range to do, especially on mid teams, and so they had a volunteer opportunity for us, and I ended up going along with uh probably like two or three other uh army instructors you know, in the same boat. And a couple of us ended up going together for the training at uh, Fort Riley, Kansas and ended up deploying together, but on different teams. <clears throat> so my job was not as a photographer, but as the person that uh, maintained and set the frequencies for all the radios in the Humvees and in the MRAPs. Um, I also was in charge of our uh, satellite Communications once we, you know, got to our uh our little base in Iraq, right. as as well as um maintaining a uh a 20-pack spar war uh internet cafe that we had. Mm. Um so I gained some some uh skills that I didn't have before, but we trained for three months at Fort Raleigh before we deployed. So it wasn't like you were you know, just thrown into the fire, right. uh, not knowing what to do with any type of training. And I ended up being a gunner on a, on a, one of the MRAPs, you know, okay. 240 uh, Bravo gunner, uh, which was strange because as we're doing convoys and going down the road, you know, my head is sticking up out of the hatch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now the 240,
0: you know, 240, is that the grenade launcher or what is it? No, what is it, it, uh, the... It,
1: just think of it as a, as a, uh, as a smaller version of an M60.
2: Okay. Okay. All right. Got it. Okay. You know, gotcha.
0: And an M60 for not, everybody is uh, basically a machine gun.
1: Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah. Yep. So with our team, we had three trucks <clears throat> each with a gunner, um, and maybe two or three people inside each one. Um, like I said, I was on a two forty. We had another guy that had the 50, right? 50 cal. And that Ooh. was usually at the, uh, he was usually at the, the end. Of a convoy. Okay. But, you know, being out of my element, man, I got to tell you that even though we had guys that had been deployed before um, our team leader, a couple of captains that were on the team, and that's what our mid team was made up of. Our, our team leader was a uh, major. And then I think we had, uh, what, five, four captains and a Lieutenant. And then we had uh, five senior NCOs, all these sevens as part of the team. So we each had different jobs. I was a commo guy. We had um, security, uh, Intel, and just different uh, supply, just different MOSs put together to try to help the Iraqis figure out best practices for their systems and try to help them figure out a better way of of doing things that they had been doing, you know, <clears throat> since, uh, since Saddam was no longer right. in power. Yeah. And to, to say that I was, not afraid would, would be a lie, you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah, especially when we would do convoys or, uh, night convoys, <clears throat> thank goodness. We never, I'm not going to say we weren't in danger cause we were in danger just being there yeah. every time we went on the road. But, uh, luckily we never, we never ran into any, uh, IEDs, uh, never got, you know, shot at or sniped or anything like that. Yeah. Couple of incidents where you know, I had to go out uh in a couple of towns to do site surveys to set up uh satellites for Mm. the battalion or brigade that was in the AO. Um which was weird because I'm thinking okay, I'm not a qualified S six soldier. Yep. I've only had training in this for three months. And so for for everybody to
0: know what the S six is. That's like the army's uh communications uh technology that's that's the division that kind of controls all of the army technology type stuff right yeah yeah that's the
1: it people the radios communications all of that yep and so i got put in charge of going out trying to find sites for these people to put up their radio antennas their satellites so they could communicate with each other and you know not be seen or find out found out by the uh Insurgents that were in Iraq at the time, and the place that we were was actually a place called Ur Camp. Ur is where we were, which you know uh, that has some some biblical connotation to it as well okay. um, with the Zagarot and you know you could do some do some research on that. But okay. uh, I have to say that that being there, I was lucky that I was on the team that I was on. Surrounded by the guys that were on the team, the ones that were experienced, that took care of us and told us what to expect, um, and you know things to do, things not to do, <laughs> which was cool. And to give you an idea of of the time frame of where we were while we were there, uh, you know, we had access to cable, uh, CNN, um, a couple of movie channels, and and different things like that. Right. And I remember being in a meeting. Uh, one day and you know we're sitting in there having a meeting the tv's on in the background and it flashes something flashes on the screen saying that michael jackson was dead oh wow right so yeah so we stopped our meeting and turned the tv up and probably just sat there for the next two hours watching the news coverage of uh of the announcement of his death man it was like you know, wow, we're over here doing this thing, but this type of thing is still happening back in the States and everything. And it was just, it was just kind of a surreal moment, you know, that gave us a little taste of being back in the States, but still, you know, letting us know that we were, we were still in a, in a dangerous place, so to speak. Mm. Um, But, you know, interacting with the, um, with the Iraqis turned out to be better than I expected because when we did our training at Fort Riley, Kansas, there were Iraqis already there, you know, people that were interpreters. Right. And they got to come to the States to try to uh, blend in and try to get citizenship.
2: Okay. Wow. I
1: didn't know that. Yeah. Literally the first time that I saw them, uh, you know, I got goosebumps on my, on my skin in, you hear, you hear that phrase, the hair stood up on the back of my neck, man, oh, yeah. because because of everything that I had seen on TV, everything that I had been told about Iraqis and Afghanis. And so I was just, you know, afraid, fearful of them, man. You know, yeah. I was like, man, why are these people over here and all this, that, and the other? And I didn't really understand. But then once we got there and over a period of time, you know, I, I don't want to say you build friendships, but you build a certain amount of uh, trust. Yeah you know, with your Iraqi counterparts. knowing, And it was basically, I think it was more or less because it was a a give and take type of thing. They would expect us to give them things, um, you know, to help them out, like radio equipment or maybe medical supplies or, you know, things along that line. And they would invite us out you know, to their camp, their side of the camp for, you know, dinners. We'd invite them to our side for, mm. for dinners and, you know, just basic communications and, you know, trying to, as the saying goes, trying to win hearts and minds. Yeah. And uh when we got ready to leave, it was, it was actually, after that year was up, it was actually kind of sad to see, you know, to leave, even though we were, you know, jumping up and down, let's get out of here like yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was, after seeing these guys every day and, and building up a little bit of uh, a little bit of trust with them and and being able to interact where they could understand us and we could understand them without that big language barrier, even though there was still a language barrier there, we you know we understood each other. Or we'd write things down or make gestures, right. hand gestures, where the communication was good. And so it was kind of sad to see those you know to to leave, but we were glad at the same time. Excuse me. And, you know, occasionally I'll look at the photos and think, man, I wonder where these guys are, yeah. are now, how some of them uh, fared out. And there's a couple of interpreters that we had over there that I'm actually uh, still friends with on Facebook, you know. Okay. And so we, you know, we still chit chat, and a couple of them ended up coming, being able to come to the States uh, on whatever that program is that that allowed interpreters to come here. Right. Um, so, it, you know, so it, it was, it was scary, but, um, but I'm glad I did it and, and got it out of the way and all of our team made it back, you yeah. know, without being, uh, being physically, physically harmed.
0: Right. Well, you know, I'm glad cause, uh, you know, I talked about this with, uh, Lee, Major McMuhan um, you know, on, on this, because I'm glad you were able to humanize um, the people that you were working with in Iraq, because I think from this, from this side of town, I guess, when you're looking at, from an American standpoint, you know, they just see body counts. Okay. It's like, you know, when, when the war first started, I remember when we were at Dietrich, and you see across the screen, this many soldiers died today. This many Iraqis were blown up in and this and this, and, it's, and, it, and it desensitized you to what's actually going on. So I appreciate you humanizing these people that you were working with because a lot of people here, you know, we, they, I won't say we, but I'll say a lot of people have this, this, this mind, this thought process, kind of like what you said, but you know, you, you didn't know until you actually met with them, but. People right. have this mindset of, okay, this guy looks like this and he looks like that. So, you know, we're going to avoid him, especially around that time. People, if you, if you walked in somewhere with the, especially at the 9-11, if you walk somewhere with a, with a turban on or anything like that, people were avoiding you. Um, but the, the, the vast majority of people in other war torn countries, the vast majority of them at the end of the day, want the same thing out of life that we want you know, good health, want to be able to take care of their families. You know, they just want to live their lives yep. and most yep. people, that's what they want. And I think, and, and, and you can even compare it somewhat to, to our lives here. You know, when we talk about black lives here, you know, we want the same thing everybody else wants. We want health. We want, you know, to be able to take care of our family, you know, but mm-hmm. we it's, it's hard to do that when you're feared and people are afraid of you. Um, yeah. So I appreciate yeah. you, uh, D, uh, or, or humanizing, uh, the people in Iraq, because you know, they're, they're not, they're not, everybody is trying to blow up Americans.
1: You that's know? true. And, that, and that's a good point, man. Once you can see people as humans and meet them where they are and actually talk to them, then I think that that takes away some fear. Yeah. Of course, being in a war zone, you still have your, you still have your guard up. Oh yeah. You know what I'm saying? But you know, like being here in the States, if you just talk to people that that would alleviate half the problem right there.
3: Yeah.
0: No, I agree. I agree with that. So uh, I want to kind of circle back a little bit um, real quick to talk about DIMFO. So a lot of people aren't aware of DEMFOs. Nobody in the Army is is pretty much aware of DIMFOs because when I told when I was in the Army and I told people I was a 25 mic Multimedia Illustrator, they would look at me. And most of them would be like, what? You're, you know, you're, you're a cartoonist or, you know, you're, you're this or you're that. <laughs> so I'm like, no, I'm not a cartoonist, you know? So, uh, so I want to tell everybody what Denfos is. Denfos is the defense information school. And in my opinion is one, it, now our jobs haven't always trained at this new facility. It's, well, it's not new now, but when I went, it was only about two or three years old. And, um, you know, there was another base where they trained, I think it was in Florida somewhere where we trained before, um, they moved up to Fort
1: Meade. I I don't know for sure, but. Oh yeah, you're right. Now go back before that. Yeah. To, uh, Lowry Air Force Base in Aurora, Colorado. Oh wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know that.
0: And before that, that.
1: before that Fort Benjamin Harrison in, uh, Indianapolis, I think it is. Wow. Yeah.
0: See that's, yeah, that's, that's definitely, uh, that's definitely going back. But you were an instructor at Denfos, uh, the defense information school. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I left that school and there are some army jobs that you're probably familiar with when we were at Dietrich, some of these guys were coming out of their AIT with associate's degrees, you know. Yeah. Um, so the yeah. army has some some really nice schools. But talk about Denfos, because Denfos was one of the very was a very unique place for for army for army training.
1: It, it is in the sense that it is also uh, the military communicator school for the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, and even the Coast Guard. Mm, right. So if your yep. job involves photography, public affairs, um, graphic illustration, uh, we talk about on the 25 Romeo side, uh, you know, equipment repairs yep. of TVs, uh, recording devices, um, camera studios, things along that nature. This, Denfos is the premier center for that type of training, as well as international students um, in the public affairs arena. And so being an instructor there for three years was really um, a blessing for me, man, in the sense that it helped me gain some knowledge uh, about our job because when I came in, I was a 20 at the time it was called 25 Papa, which was video, right? So our, the MOS was split between you either did video or you did still photography. Mm. And I think around the end of 93, maybe 90 middle end of 93 is when they combined them and made it one MOS, but you still have to go past photography before you get to the video course. And then you move out to you know, the, the career, career field for the army. Um, whereas the air force, I think they, instead of separating, they came together and everybody just falls under public affairs now. Okay. Similarly with the Navy, um, they're mass communicators. So, you know, you might be under the umbrella of mass communication, which includes photography, video, uh, graphics, um, public affairs, et cetera, Marines are, are kind of the same, same way. And even though everybody trains there, you know, you still maintain your separate uh, individual military section doctrine and training and all that kind of stuff, except for when you're, of course, when you're in class there at, um, at Denfold. But the way I got there, I can't remember. Do you, do you know Kevin Thomas, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He we used you to know, yeah, you know. we used, yeah, yeah, we used to work together. Yeah. Yeah. So Kevin was my supervisor when I was in Hawaii, right? Okay. Um, and again, I go back to being at Denfos, counting Denfo's as a blessing because when I got to Hawaii, I had no photography experience. I came through, remember, I came through on the video side. Right. So the weekend I get to seal high in Hawaii. Um, the so I see of the lab at the time, certain first class King, she gave me Two film cameras, a Nikon. Uh, what was it, a Nikon N9? Okay. I want to say and maybe an N4. Okay. Gave me five rolls of film. Said go out and shoot, and come back and we'll see what see what everything looks like. Mm. That was my photography and tra- training. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious, man. So everything oh, I did man. after that point was was a uh, trial and error. You know, I had to figure out how to use the flash on my own. Yeah. Uh, figure out the camera settings, you know, the ISO and yeah. all this kind of stuff and hope that I got a good picture. Cause it wasn't digital.
0: Right. Yeah. People don't appreciate you know, that. People film. Understand. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, you look at, you know, people nowadays can look at their cell phone, take a picture and, and, you know, or, or a DSL camera and, and take a picture and look at it. What we call chimping, you know, cause you take yep. the picture, you go, Ooh, 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 look at that. Ooh. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? That, yeah, that's that's literally what we call it. Right, I know. the services, yeah. it's chimping. So that was my photography training. Kevin being my supervisor there, um, when I was getting ready to come off the trail, you know, I was looking for an assignment, and DENFOs came up. And Kevin is how I got in because after he left Hawaii, he went to DENFOs and became the uh, one of the NCIcs of the uh, communications lab there, or section for the army. Okay. And that's how I got in was knowing him. Uh and he, you know, he bought me in there as a uh as a uh BSP instructor. Okay. And but you know, you I didn't jump right into it. You had to go through instructor training. Right. Yep. For like two or three weeks, I think it was, and get certified uh before they would let you actually start teaching. So that whole process was probably three months okay. maybe from the time I got there, I went through an instructor training course and got certified to get on the floor and teach a class, be the be the lead instructor, so to speak, of a particular uh, class or whatever we doing we were doing. Um, and some of the students, like I said, just like in basic training, some of the students I had there, I'm still in touch with today, mm. you know, some are out, some are working at Waka, some still at fifty fifth. yeah, they've made the circuit from fifty fifth to uh, back to Denfos as instructors themselves when they came through as PFCs or E4s out to Fort Irwin and just, you know, different places. So it, it's kind of <laughs> kind of like watching everything go full circle for me being an instructor and having these kids as my students. Yeah. And now watching them as uh, senior NCOs and, mm. you know, excelling in ways that myself and them too never – never expected but it, at the same time it's good to see them uh you know doing what they're doing and and still in it still enjoying it still uh you know producing great imagery and, and yeah. telling great stories and everything a couple of them even have their own business photography businesses oh good okay you know they're out and uh you know and and I think about the uh the growth of of you know talking about former former students former soldiers of like where you are Right now, and what you're doing, you know, my man DJ Teddy. Yeah, you know, man. <laughs> Teddy, you been know, at I, it for
0: a while, man. That that yeah, guy was man, grinding, you man. You know, when, when
1: we were at Denfo's, man. Uh, I mean, not Denfo, but uh, when we were Dietrich. at December. Yeah, yeah. When we were at Deichick, man, he started that mess. And yep. you know, to see where he is right now, man, and see where you are right now, is a blessing to me. And you know, I don't take any um any kudos or anything mm. like that because getting with you guys in the beginning kind of gave you a little bit of a foundation but where you are right now is all you yeah you know what i'm saying you got people that pour into us that build us up and it's up to us to take that and 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 glean what we can you know and not hold on to the getting smoked and <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> no, no all to all it. that yeah. kind of stuff. You know what right. I'm saying? And, right. You know,
1: but that's good too. And then, you know, you use that as a as a building block and stepping stone to um to where you are. And you'd asked a question earlier about my particular uh leadership style. I'll tell you where that came from. Mm. Sort of when I was at Fort uh right here at Fort Sam and, at my first duty station, I remember I had an NCO or NCOIC man would tell us, you guys are the worst soldiers I've ever seen in my life. I don't know what's wrong with you. I've never seen a soldier like this. And she would just, you know, part of my friends would bitch at us, man, almost yeah. on a daily basis, yeah. you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like in her eyes, we could never do anything right, even though we were doing stuff right. right. But at the time <clears throat> where I worked at, there was probably like 10, 12 military, and the rest, maybe 30 or so were civilians. So anytime, one of the civilians who didn't happen to like the military people went and told her something that we allegedly did, then she would come down on us, you know? And after that speech about us being the worst soldiers and her reaming us out and all this other kind of stuff, man, I said, if I ever get to a point where I'm in charge of somebody, mm. I will never be that type of NCO. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll say what I got to say. Discipline is necessary. Show the right way versus, you know, what they're doing, go by the standard, et cetera, et cetera. But I will never, if I can help it, demean a soldier or my troops like that in front of anybody. And so from that standpoint, and also being, you know, 29 when I joined, turning 30 in basic training, you know, and already having a family and everything, I kind of took from that too, you know, Hmm. of already having a family and, and applying, you know, certain things, um, to that situation. So that, that is where, uh, most of my, um, most of my, uh, leadership style came from, particularly when I had, when I had black soldiers and I felt like they weren't, you know, giving 110% or giving their best, mm-hmm. man, I would be like, look, you have to do it better than everybody else. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not going to be the one to let you come in here and slack off and step and fetch it your way through this and think that what you're doing is okay. Right. Because it's not, I said, you're making me look bad. You're making yourself look bad. You know, people already, if they already got a a low expectation of you or they think low of you, any, everything that you do is going to be tainted from that point forward. So you have to do something, not necessarily to try to impress them, but to show that, Going back to what you said about negative stereotypes to show that you aren't that stereotype right that's that you're better than that, you yeah. know and so that was always part of my leadership style and thinking of we got to do it better, we got to do it the right way, and if you do that, then everything else you know will will take care of itself.
0: Right. No. And, and we, we definitely appreciated the leadership. When I was talking to Lee, you know, I told him, you know, we got, we kind of got spoiled at Fort Detrick because that was, you know, we had a a all-star roster of, uh, of good leaders. Um, And, you know, we got spoiled and that was definitely a good foundation for me because that story you just told, I think you actually, uh, I think you actually told me that one time before, I don't think I was doing anything, but I think it was just kind of one of those things we were talking about um, you know, sitting up in that office cause you know, we didn't always have a whole lot of work to do because our job was yeah. to basically support the, uh, you know, if there was a ceremony or, you know, if they were doing some kind of briefing, you know, with, you know, right. um, yep. so, you know, I, th- I think that was one of the conversations, but I also wanted to go back to the Denfos thing because I don't know if I told you this, but so was, it, was it master Sergeant Kilo who was, who I had met with that one time, Kio or Kilo, uh, at Denfos that you introduced me to, do you remember her? Was that her?
1: she was, she was in charge of it. I think it might, I think it was, uh, at the time, I think it was a match with Sergeant Piper's Okay.
0: Okay. Maybe, maybe that's who that was. So, um, you know, they were, she would, whoever that was, whoever I met with, they were willing to accept me, but branch wouldn't release me. But I don't, the part that I don't know if you know was a couple years ago, I got offered a job there as a civilian, as an instructor.
1: Yeah. I remember um, you telling me okay. that. Yep. I
0: did tell you that. Okay. So, yep. you know, in so many ways, I wished I could have done it, but the commute would, have just, it just would have not, would not have worked based on the age that my son was at the time, because he was only mm-hmm. about six, maybe seven or seven or maybe he was about seven or eight and he, you know, he couldn't stay home by himself. So if we couldn't be here yeah. when he got home, you know, that just wouldn't have worked out. So, Uh, I really, I really wanted to, uh, work at Demfo. So that's, that's the segue into the last, uh, uh, thing that I really wanted to get into was, uh, give us a brief, uh, give us some brief, uh, discussion about 55th combat camera, and then also talk a little bit about your time at, uh, at, at the war college up in Carlisle.
1: Sure. So, so 55th is, is a, a very unique beast in the army. Um, 55th is one of those places, like you had talked about earlier about basic training, it's either going to make you or it's going to break you. Right. Depending on what your mindset is, um, what you're, what you're going for there. And the, uh, <clears throat> the motto is, uh, uh, you know, 55th signal company, combat camera, eyes of the army. Mm. So With that, we have, you know, soldiers, uh, 25 Romeos, Mikes, um, go out with different units and document their training. They go down range with them when they deploy, including including, uh, ranger forces, um, group forces, uh, Navy, where they go out pretty much with everybody, except for the Marines, because the Marines pretty much stay to themselves. Right. <clears throat> but being there, really, everything that I did up until the, in the military, up to that point, kind of prepared me for being at 55th and being able to deal with uh, discipline issues, different personalities of soldiers, um, and, you know, being thrust into leadership as a platoon sergeant, as acting first sergeant, sometimes, and people looking to you really uh, for answers, man, to you know, to solve problems, to solve their problems, you know, whether it be uh, domestic incidences or um, financial issues, right? Yep. You know, um, maybe drug problems, all of those things were at 55th, just like they are in the rest of the Army. And so that was like a culmination of everything that I had learned in the Army about leadership, discipline, how to deal with different different personalities and different things. And I'm not gonna say that throughout my career, always did things the right way. Uh, You know, I tried as much as I could to do it the right way for the unit for the soldier et cetera. but you're always going to have you know that one or two soldiers that don't like you for whatever reason yeah yeah think you're old think you're being harder on them than you are on somebody else you know half the time people like that you know they weren't even they weren't even in my direct chain of command mm. maybe they were you know in a different platoon different squad or whatever and our interactions weren't, you know, weren't always personal, so to speak. And so, from that standpoint, um, I enjoyed being at 55th. I like training the soldiers. Um, I'll give you a quick story while I was there. Okay. You know, we're talking about, um, you know, people not being able to cope, not being able to uh, deal with certain things in the military. But you can also kind of tell when people are shamming and, and playing the system. Right. Yep. So to speak. Right. So I remember I had a soldier who, um, I don't want to say he played crazy, but there was definitely some mental issues there. He'd already been in, I think the air force reserve or Marine reserve before he joined the army full time, had some personality disorder, order dis disorder problems, threatened to kill the commander. Oh. Um, told me that he wanted to kick my <laughs> ass. And I said, well, before you do, I'll let you call your wife. Oh man. And tell her that you about to make the biggest mistake in your life. And uh never had another problem out of that out of that soldier. <laughs> But, wow, that's bold. Yeah, it, but see what it was, it was a buildup to being admitted and getting discharged at whatever VA rating he could get, mm. trying to get to 100 and still maintain benefits, you know, a year or so or however long that is after you get out. Yeah, Right. yeah. He even said this, wow, verbalized this out loud mm. <clears throat> once you know he started going to Walter Reed for whatever, but then, when the paperwork started that they were gonna discharge him, he was like, "I just want to make sure that my family gets commissary privileges, my family gets uh, uh insurance and all this other kind of stuff, you know, and so he got out, got his uh hundred percent disability never deployed. 55th was his first duty station straight out of AIT. And, uh, you know, so what was his MOS? Uh, he was a, uh, combat camera 25 Victor. Oh, was he a Victor? Okay. All right. Yeah, he was a Victor. And so it just, you know, there, there was some, definitely some of that there and you see it across the army too. Anybody says it, that it doesn't happen is, is lying to themselves because, that's what, and he was an older guy at the time. I think he was forty-four. Oh, wow! And so, yeah, forty-four, a specialist. No chance of ever, you know, getting promoted or whatever. But you know, that's just how some people. In my mind, I'm not an expert, but in in my mind, that's how some people play the system. Right. And nine, no, unfortunately, nine times out of ten. It comes through favorably for them, and then they end up screwing it up for somebody else with legit issues, yeah, true you know it's just trying to do their job and and get by you know without being a headache to somebody right <laughs> so <clears throat> after my time at um fifty fifth I went out to n t c you know we started up the vulture team out there again, which was cool, you know, I was out there for two years. Mm. Um, and people would always be like, man, you don't want to go to NTC. You don't want to go out there, but I actually liked it. You know what I'm saying? Because as isolated as it was, we still had opportunities to go to different, uh, events in Mm. LA and Hollywood, uh, like the Grammys, you know, um, some of the game shows they had out there. Um, I got the escort, Jessica Alba on stage at the Spike TV Guys Choice Awards I remember that. Yeah. 2013. Just different cool stuff like that, man. It, you know, the work is hard. Yeah, you're working 20-28 days straight with 4 days off, mm-hmm. and then you're right back at it again as units come in to the rotation, you know, to do their training before they deploy. Right. But that that was actually turned out to be a um a better uh duty station than I imagined it was. Plus, you know, my wife's dad lived in San Bernardino, which was maybe an hour and a half away. Oh, wow. Okay. So we, you know, we go down there about every other weekend or they would come up or whatever, you know, and so, so that was, that was pretty cool, yeah. you know, to do that. And uh, so from there, I went to my last duty station, Carlisle Barracks, which is <clears throat> up until I got ready to go there, I never heard of Carlisle Barracks. Okay. So I asked around, you know, a couple of buddies and found out that they had been stationed there cool assignment at the U.S. Army War College, Um, and that is where um, officers go from all branches of service, primarily Army, but they also have Marines, Air Force, uh, Navy officers that go through there, I guess, for 10 months, just like they're going to school, Yeah. Um, and intensive officer training where they come out, I think, with a master's degree. Yep. Or maybe a bachelor's degree or something well, I think um, it's
2: a master's, I think you're right,
1: yeah, might be a master's degree, and this is when they're about to uh get promoted to one star general if they're already a one star, maybe they're about to get promoted to two star or whatever something like that right and uh so our job was to support them and the people that were there through i worked as as a video video teleconference uh, scheduler facilitator, yep. you know, VTC for short. And I tell people, they ask, what do you do? What are do you doing in the Army or what are do you doing in the military? I'm like, well, if I tell you VTC, you're not going to really understand what I'm saying. But if I <laughs> tell you, it's like, think of it like uh, something like Skype right. or yep. FaceTime or whatever you use on your phone to talk to somebody face to face. I said, think of it like that except for the military. And you can also do it uh, through secure channels where you won't get hacked and that type of stuff, right? Yeah. Excuse me. So I did that for maybe a year and a half. You know, uh, well, let me take that back. It wasn't even, yeah, two years, January 2015, I retired in September of 2016. And the reason that got cut short, of course, as you know, I had heart surgery in April of 2015. Yeah. Um. After, you know, uh, finding out there was an issue with my mitral valve that required mm-hmm. me to get surgery. Right. So got that fixed and uh, then had to spend like, a, I think the next nine months or so uh, going through the med board and everything like that. And then finally, finally retired. But working at that job, in particular, led me to where I am now, Okay. right? Doing VTCs for the Army last year and a half or so that I was in brought me to my current job doing, guess what, same thing. Yeah, yep. You know, so in that sense, it it all kind of, you know, came around full circle. Like I said before, everything that I did in the military led me to, Becoming a decent NCO at 55th, everything that I did after that led me to where I am now, um, you know, with the job that I'm doing. So, you know, it it's uh I have to say it's cliche, but I have to say, man, in that sense that I've I've been um extremely fortunate and extremely blessed to be where I am right now. Mm. Um still be in contact with people like you. You know, that we more like you and I I tell you all the time, you, Teddy, uh, Trowbridge, Joey Trowbridge, Quintisha Mason, you Mm. guys were my first soldiers that I ever had that I was in charge of, right? Mm. And so um, I guess thinking about you guys and building those leadership blocks with the four of you, also helped push me to, you know, carrying that forward to, to other assignments that I had dealing with other soldiers that I had. Um, and real quick, you were talking about when you were late, uh, late <laughs> yeah. for formation, right? Yeah. I used to have this problem with with Mason. Everybody that was at Fort Dietrich at the time that she was there knows this, man. And We'd be running, running the fence line. And she'd already missed formation. And by the time we ran by the barracks, I would have to stop sometimes, go knock on her door and wake her up. Wow. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, man. You know,
2: that's funny. And
1: then when I, when I was at 55th, I had another soldier that had the same problem. And I think I ended up giving both of them, at least the one at 55th, I ended up giving him recommending them for article 15 because you know, I don't know. He, he just couldn't get right for whatever reason. <laughs> and, uh, that's funny. But I, it, like I said, it's like, everything was a stepping stone, a building block to the next level mm. to the next level that brought me to where I am right now. And, you know, it's, it's so many people, uh, that I was fortunate enough to work with and fortunate enough to interact with throughout those years, you know, the 24 years that I was, active duty in the army, man, I couldn't even, I don't know. I couldn't even begin to name all the people that, that had an influence on me and, you know, put their trust and confidence in me, you know, to, to be that leader that they needed um, to be the discipline that they needed. <laughs> and I go back to, to my day, of the 55th, you know, I was kind of like the bulldog. Yeah. There, right. Yeah. You know, um the guy that kind of tried to keep every keep everybody at least the the senior NCOs to try to keep everybody together yeah and and you know bite down when I needed to and make sure everybody was doing the job that they were supposed to do but we had a lot of good NCOs there everywhere I've, I've been stationed actually we had a lot of good NCOs mm. that took care of each other um looked out for each other and even to this day man you know like you and I are talking right now we still stay in touch with each other, still laugh and joke about the good old days <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. you know, that type of thing. And so, you know, I'm just I'm just really blessed and fortunate, man, to still be able to have. People in my life like you, like Teddy and and everybody else that I've met throughout throughout that 24 year uh, journey.
0: Right. And, you know, I think as, as you were talking, I was thinking about this. Um, one of the things I think I picked up from you over the years was, um, you know, you talked about being the bulldog, bulldog is, you know, I can't think of a time where, you know, if there was an issue, you would, you would, you would approach that issue. You would bring that issue up. And what I find in leadership now and in a lot of other places that I've been, people are afraid to, you know, to speak up for their people. And even as time was in the military, you would have certain uh NCOs, non-commissioned officers who were afraid to speak up for their soldiers because they were afraid of how that would reflect on them. And to me, that rendered them, ine- in, you know, ineffective because they couldn't yep. look out for their soldiers. And, you know, my <laughs> my wife laughs at me all the time. Cause she's like, you know, you're always trying to stir up the pot. I'm like, no, it's not really about stirring up the pot. And that's one thing that I picked up from you is that, you know, you always, you have to, you have to speak up. You have, you have to speak up and you have to, you know, you have to. You know, it it ain't about being a. You know, trying to tell people. You know, or you know, trying to tell people what to do or bossing people around or anything like that. Or, or right. trying to make it look like you're the big dog. But you you just you, you can't lead anybody if you're not willing to speak up for them. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's exactly. one of the things that I that's that's what I picked up. And to see the leadership slack off like that over the years is why I say when I was at Fort Dietrich, I've been to four or five duty assignments. And when I was at Fort Dietrich, that was that's what I really appreciated about you and, and the leadership there because you guys, you know, you guys spoke up because we've uh I I, I won't go into that, but we uh there was there was sometimes some leadership issues there. So um so yeah, so I really definitely appreciated that.
1: Um Yeah, I think I think you find leadership issues just about at every level, man. I mean, mm-hmm. from <clears throat> excuse me, from being a private up through, you know, general officers, there yeah. there's always An issue with with some, with leadership style not being, you know, because I've seen NCOs get relieved of duty. I've seen officers get relieved of duty, Mm. um, you know, for uh, infractions against soldiers or not maintaining the standard or whatever. Uh, And luckily, you know, thank God that never happened to me. You know, I never, never crossed that line, so to speak. But you know, I was—I I can say I definitely peeked over the edge a couple of times. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When that and, soldier
0: was about to take you out back.
1: Yeah. You know, <laughs> I've I definitely peeked over that edge, man. And But you just got to know which direction to take and where to cut it off. You know, where does uh, – I'm throwing up air quotes here, but where does Drill Sergeant Owens end and Sergeant Owens – person begin, you right. know, so that soldiers will trust you and NCOs will trust you to come to you with their, with their problems and be able to sit down. And you don't even necessarily have to be able to give them, uh, answers or solutions all the time. Sometimes right. you just need people to listen. And then during that listening process, you know, occasionally they figure it out on their own, Hey, thanks, sir. I appreciate it. And, you know, move out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, this was,
0: uh, this was really good. Really uh, appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we probably should catch up again soon, uh, outside of this and, you know, have a conversation, uh, catch up on some things. Um, so, but no, I I appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on here. But, uh, the last thing I I forgot to say is, is there anything, uh, that you would like to tell, uh, (laughs) service members who are just now joining or about to retire, um any encouraging words for for that that soldier that might be sitting down right now trying to decide he's at eight, at the 8-year mark 8 to 9 to 10-year mark and he's trying to just he or she is trying to decide if they want to continue to to uh keep on the service uh any encouraging words uh parting words I should say or encouraging to encourage someone
1: so yeah so I would say first of all man you know as you know the military is not for everybody Th- that goes to any thing that you do in life, any job that you do in life. The military is not for everybody, but if you're in it, glean what it from, you can't, you know, glean what you can from it, whether it be the education, you know, think of how many people that you know that came in, excuse me, without, maybe they came in with a GED and they now have a bachelor's or a master's degree. Right. You know, um, Use it to your benefit, and when you're in, do your job, do the best that you can, help somebody else along the way, like 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 people helped you mm. come up through the ranks. Um, you know, if you have certain experience in situations, you know, impart your wisdom, even if you, even if you are a specialist E4, and you think that whatever you have to say uh won't contribute to the unit i guarantee you it will and it does and you know just today i heard this conversation on the radio um about that very question that you asked you know as 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 a black man what would you tell other black people that may be considering joining the military or if they're already in what would you tell them Hmm. and what i just said just use use it for your benefit you know, um, know when you join, you're not going to go down range immediately. You might be in an MOS where you never, where you never get deployed, right. but just try to do things to help build your character, help build your resume so that when you get out, you know, every step that you take along that journey is setting you up for success. When you get out and when it is time to get out, Man, I know it's a lot of paperwork. Sometimes it's a headache to do, but make sure that you go to the VA and you get every benefit that you have earned while you were in the military. Even if you think you don't deserve it, you know, mm. get every benefit that you can. If you got kids, you're not using your GI Bill, pass that on to your kids and let them use it. Yeah you know, but, but in everything that you do like that, try to reach back, give, you know, give something back to somebody because somebody helped you get to where you are right now. So I think it's only fair. I think it's only right that we reach back and try to help somebody else.
0: Wow. I, I appreciate that. And I'll throw in one, one other plug behind that. So I interviewed, uh, uh, guy by the name of, uh, Dr. Xavier Bruce, uh, former, uh, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. And right now he, his, his, his business, uh, actually helps soldiers, uh, transition. So, um, I would, I I will send that information over to you just so you can have it because I think you would really appreciate what he's, what he's doing. So, Uh, again, Alan, appreciate your time. Uh, we'll, we'll touch bases again after this. I'll send you a a message here soon, but, uh, appreciate your time.
1: Yes, sir, my man. I'm glad to do it to you, man. You know, thank you for uh, reaching out, you know, as always. And, uh, yeah, man, you know, keep, keep stirring the pot, bro. All
0: right,
1: man. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. All right. All right. We'll holler at you later, Luke. All right. Take care, man. You too. Later.
0: all right that was my former supervisor alan owens as you can see he you know he's a pretty down-to-earth guy pretty straightforward guy you know what i'm saying you know he'll he'll give you he'll give you what he got you know so i really appreciated that interview uh he was fort dietrich was my second duty station and he was my supervisor, but I learned so much under him and I learned so much while I was there. And, like he said, you know, a lot of people that we were working with are out doing big things right now. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate y'all listening. Uh, last episode after this one is gonna be my dad, uh, Vietnam War vet Luke Burke Sr. All right, y'all. This is Candidly Speaking. It's been fun to do these military interviews, being a former military person myself. It's it's been fun. It's been real. And it's been interesting to listen to everybody's experiences. All right. Catch up with y'all next time. This is Luke Burke, candidly
3: speaking. I'm out.